Okay. <clears throat> we are like at the halfway point now. I don't know if you all realize that or not. That's kind of a scary thought, isn't it, that we're almost halfway through the course. Of course, though, days are getting a little longer and they're getting warmer and spring is coming and uh, some of you all really like that. I'm still, Tammy and I are still waiting for the big snow, right, Tammy? Yeah. Yeah, February's not over yet. It could happen. Snowed one year during spring break. Yeah, when, when my son was in first grade, on, on Monday of spring break, he and a couple of friends, I have pictures, made a snowman in the front yard. And then by Friday, they were in their shorts playing outside. So uh, that's Oklahoma, but I'm still holding on for that big snow. So this week, let's um, unpack our homework and look at it. We're, continue, we're, we're rapidly approaching. This is really kind of the last... The last text of scripture where he's going to speak very doctrinally. He, the, the author of Hebrews is not as clean cut as, say, Paul. Where Paul, if you've studied his letters, you see very, very uh, clearly how he'll lay out. Remember when we did Romans or if you've done Philippians, any of those? He lays out his doctrine. He starts off there. He prays for him. He lays out doctrine. And then at one point, he'll say, therefore... Like in Romans 12, 1, therefore, meaning, okay, now because of all this doctrinal truth that we, I just expounded upon for you and taught you, now then, here's how you live in the light of that. And that's, that's where we're going. He's going to sum up. He's going to do a lot of repetition. I don't think he said anything this week. We hadn't really already heard. There was nothing particularly new, but he's really emphasizing that better sacrifice that Jesus made and how much better it is than the Old Testament sacrifices. And then in 1019 next week, there's a therefore. And he's going to get a lot more personal, a lot more applicable. Now that you understand what Jesus has done, now that you understand the, the superiority of him and the superiority of the new covenant, and you understand that you are new covenant Christians, not old covenant Jews, now how do you live in the light of that? What does that look like? We know how the Old Covenant Jews lived. How do we live as New Covenant believers? And because I like what this one pastor I listened to this week said. He said, too many of us continue to live like Old Testament Jews. And I think he's right if we think about it. We, are, we do get caught in that trap. We really do. So with that said, let's start. Um, I want to start... Let's start on number two, all the contrasts. Did you notice all those contrasts? There were a lot of them, weren't they? What did you see? Let's just put some of them up here. All the contrasts that were in this chapter. <coughs> Tell me what you saw. Okay, so in the Old Covenant, all these are primarily contrasting the Old and the New, aren't they? So we have the Old and the New. So what you're saying, um, June, is in the Old, the priest stood versus what in the New? Okay, Christ sat down. Okay, somebody else. Okay. Many, multiple, over thousands of years, right? 
So we had many versus one. Good. What else? Continual offering, so I'm going to say um, many sacrifices, and that word continual was in there. Just They just continued to do it year after year, day after day, year after year, particularly on that Day of Atonement, every single year that rolled around, versus one, one sacrifice. Did I hear for all? For all time. Okay? Others? Love it. Okay, this is a shadow in true form. So if I kind of sit and meditate on that in just a minute and think about it a little bit further... This is the reality, the true form or the reality. You know, the simplest thing to think of is I am, I am the reality of, of who I am. And if I go outside right now on a sunny day, you're going to see my shadow, which is just, a, it's just an extension of who I am. It, it, it casts a, an outline, an image of what I might look like, but it's not me. It's not the real thing. So all of this cast an image it portrayed um, uh, elements of what the truth and what the reality were, but it is not the reality. This is the true form. This is the true reality. Okay? Anything else? The laws. Okay. So I'm going to say this was ex- external, wasn't it? And this is internal. Thinking back to chapter 8 and Jeremiah, and he kind of mentions it again here. The laws were written on stones and on tablets. Everything was external. And under the new covenant, I've written it on your hearts. And if we go on and study more about the new covenant, I've written it on your hearts, and I've also put my spirit within you that you might obey. That's what we, we saw that that week that Brenda taught. What was, what was deficient about the old covenant, although I hate to use the word deficient, because it really wasn't. We were deficient. What God gave was good, but it wasn't ever intended to be internal, to change the heart. It was intended to teach us, which we'll talk a little bit more about in a few minutes. Okay? Did you have something else, Jean? Okay. Hold that thought for a minute when we talk about what was inadequate. Okay, and in just a minute. Okay. Okay. Here they were just covered. What was some of the words about? They were covered, but what did it really specifically say about the sins? Did you catch it? No, never taken away. And what did you say, Teresa, on the new? Yeah, we're cleansed and forgiven. 
In that respect, I'll go ahead and, and build upon what you just said, what you were just commenting on, trying to make a contrast. In that respect, the Old Covenant Jews really had no concept of the full pardon, the full peace, the, the full sense of removal of guilt for their sin, complete forgiveness or certainty that New Covenant believers have. That, that was not, what an, um, what's the word I'm looking for? What kind of a shifting sand to live on? To constantly, it's almost like a constant anxiety that you're living with, that I can make this sacrifice and my, my sins are covered, but I'm going to have to do it again and again and again. There's never really any complete peace or, or removal of guilt. Am I making sense? Uh-huh. Yeah, always, it's always lingering there. There's something just always lingering out there as a reminder constantly that never goes away, that's haunting. That's what they lived with. We don't live with that. And if we are living with that, then something needs to be worked on. Something needs to be fixed because we're not supposed to be living like that. Anything else? Okay, the fact that this was a shadow, it means it was only temporary. Good, Tony. And this was permanent. Okay. I'm going to also add on here when it says that can never take away their sins, it can never do that. I'm going to use some of the words from the text, when, which um, Teresa certainly did, but I'm going to add to some other words that are in there because we're going to build upon them that this perfected for all time. So that didn't take away, but this perfected. It was complete. It was finished. It's sanctified and made holy and made us complete before the Father. Okay, do we have a good, do we have a good list, a good comprehensive list here of all the contrast? Yeah. Do you see how he's, just in doing that, you see how he's building on, he's kind of coming to the crescendo of all he's been saying up until this point. Those of you all that have been in here since last semester, you remember, where did we start out? We started out right in chapter one, who Jesus was, his superiority, that he's better than the angels. He is better than Aaron. He is better than Moses. And, and now this week, he's, he is the better sacrifice than any sacrifice they could have made with the blood of bulls and goats and unwilling animals. Oh, there's another one. This was all, it was what? Blood of bulls and goats as opposed to blood of Christ. Yes, this was blood of animals versus blood of Christ. What's significant about that? Did these animals have a choice? They were unwilling participants in this whole sacrificial system versus Christ, who was what? He was voluntary and he was willing when he gave his body to fulfill the Father's will. So there's, there's another contrast that's there. You can kind of see how some of those contrasts, I'm, getting, I'm pulling them from the text. They're not, they may not be said that way, but the truth of it is there. So every, he has laid all this out. Comments, questions?
Yeah. Then you didn't take anything away. No, and your children will have food. Sometimes yeah. Food. Don't, you can't depend on, you know, somebody uh, putting up stones or somebody putting something up to remind them. It's like, no, write it on your heart. You know it. Mm-hmm. Write mm-hmm. it on your heart. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Nothing new. I don't know how long it will be before they read the Bible. But. But he can't. He can't. And that's one of the reasons we study and we, and we keep trying to put the word into our heart so that it is there, so that we do have it. And it is internal and not external. Good motivation for that. They can take those down. It isn't going to change who we are at all. Not at all. Other thoughts, comments? Okay. I kind of threw a question in there this week just for fun that I haven't done in a long time. But if you, as you went through this, this passage, um, 10, 1 through 18, if you could pick out one verse that you think is the most important verse in this text, what would you choose and why? Did you like doing that, Lynn? Do you like that question? Good. Why do you like it? Four? Two would be okay. Yeah. Did you have something, Tara? Okay. 10 and 14. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And what is seven? Okay. And why, why do you like that, Scott? Why is that the really significant verse for you? Can I put you on the spot? It's the bottom line. You know, he gave himself, and he knew that that was God's will, and he came willingly to give it. Okay, okay, good. It is very powerful stuff. You know, when I first started, when I split it up this way, and I'd send it off to Jim on how we were going to split, just to look at, but uh, at first I thought, oh, there's not enough here. What am I going to do for a whole week? <laughs> and then I got into it, and there's so much here. There's so much here. That, and so then last night and driving here today, it's like, how are we going to get it all done in an hour? There's so, there's so much richness and depth here. And I, so I appreciate that comment. Okay, somebody else. Lynn, what did you do? Okay. Yeah, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. But 10 is a more positive and a more comprehensive of everything he's trying to say. June. Verse 17. Okay. Why is verse 17 significant for you? Okay, okay, good, good. Somebody else. What were your four, Phyllis? Verse 12, 14, 
16 and 17, okay? Those are all good verses, okay? Anybody else? A lot of you have those same verses that are being talked about? Well, when you get to teach, you get to choose. <laughs> so I'm choosing 10 is what I'm choosing. Do what? Am I feisty today? No? Okay. All right, 10. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. I was kind of like Tara. It's 10 and 14, and I could have done both, but I finally chose. I, I thought, you know, for all that we're tr the author is trying to say here, I think I use 10 and build everything off of 10. So, and by that will, I'm going to write it up here. By that will, we have been sanctified. Through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That's kind of my, that's my theme verse from this. Okay, taking this verse and all these contrasts, when I look at, when we look at all these different contrasts and we see the inadequacy of what the law provided, it leads right into that next question. Why were these Old Testament sacrifices inadequate? What was inadequate about them? Yes, ma'am. No. Yeah. To be the final thing. No. No. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit more here in just a minute when we get into the quote um, from Psalm 40. Absolutely. Good point. What else? Yeah, it could not clean and perfect the conscience. That conscience, that part of us that says that God has instilled in us that kind of clues us in that maybe I've done something wrong and I should feel guilty about it. There was never any really cleansing of that. And, and tied with that is that forgiveness of sins that, that you were talking about, June, that there's really never forgiveness. It was just covered over temporarily until the next sacrifice or the next day of atonement. So it could take away those sins or provide forgiveness for sin. Anything else? Yeah, yeah. And it even limited, we saw that last week in looking at the whole tabernacle and the priesthood, it even limited the drawing near, didn't it? They could draw near, but only so far. They had God's presence within the camp, in the center of their camp, in the manifestation of the tabernacle, but yet they were separated, separated by the veil, separated by priests that they had to go through. They stood outside or on the edges and were not allowed to go in, and the high priest was only allowed to go in once a year. 
and that was it. So there was always a sense of uh, God is here, but God is far <laughs> from me. Am I making sense? You know, and there's also this sense that God, God, even though I love what you said, even though it was what God designed and it is what he had planned, did he take any pleasure in it? What did you learn? This quote in the first part of our text is from Psalm 40. If you look down in verse 5. Consequently, when Jesus, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I've come to do your will. There's your phrase, Scott, two times. When we talk about key words and repeated phrases, that's why I, have, that's why I put that question in there every single week, trying to get you all to notice those things. When two times he repeats that, he's making a point. There's something significant about, Behold, I have come to do your will. And that's one of the reasons I, I included this. I use this verse, Scott. That's why I include it, because I love those verses too. But there it was right here, by that will. That goes right back up to, is it seven and, oh, I know verse seven. Those two verses about, behold, I've come. As it is said in the scroll of the book, I've come to do your will. By what will? By God's will. By Jesus' willing sacrifice, I have come to fulfill that. Okay? So why... In sacrifices and offerings, I've taken no pleasure. So why did God give the law? Why did he give it? You made one comment. Tell me again what you said. You said... It was never meant to be the final thing. But why else? Why did he give it? Uh-huh. Yeah, how wretched it is. So if I think about, you know, why did there have to be an offering? Why did there have to be sacrifices? Why did God even do this? One, it was just sovereignly part of his plan, but, but primarily I think it's to show the terribleness and the wretchedness of sin and how much he hates sin and what a horrible, horrible thing that it is, which, which if we kind of think about this, Jim, I hear you kind of alluding to this. I hope I'm not putting words in your mouth in some of your sermons in the last several months. It's almost like we diminish sin. Like we take, how do you say it? We almost take um, a sense of accomplishment in that I am imperfect. Am I saying that correctly? Yeah. Instead of being absolutely abhorred by it. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. How set apart he was to unapproachable, and that was teaching him a little bit about his Yes, life. did you all hear, Diane? It shows the holiness of God, that separateness, and the fact that sin is so wretched 
really shows forth his holiness and who he is as God versus who we are as his creation. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, Paul does a really good job that before, before I was told do not covet, I didn't realize I was coveting. And now all I do is covet, 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 covet. I see it everywhere that I go because it's been pointed out to me. I'm really paraphrasing now. But yes, so it reveals what sin, what sin is. It reveals the terribleness of sin. It reveals the holiness of God. There's a lot of the purposes. Anything else? Why did he wait so long? Because yeah. Yeah, it was his sovereign desire to well, wait that long. Well, maybe some of it's a time frame in which we live that we want everything immediately. You know, if, if I go on my phone to look at a website and it's taking too long to load, what, two seconds? I get irritated and go on to something else. That's just taking too long to load. I mean, find the site that'll load faster. I mean, th that's kind of how we are. So we've lost sight of how he's working out. You, you know, the thought I had along that line, Norma, as I was looking at this the other night, is this, it, this is absolutely his plan, and it was totally being played out as he designed it. And how many thousands of years was this going on you, we, we live in this, the, you know, we live in a specified point in time. I think it's a le lesson object of sometimes we need to step back and see what might God be really doing here that I'm failing to see because I'm just kind of right here where my head and body are standing and in my world and missing the big, broader picture. Because we're, we have the advantage. The other thought I have is we, what an enormous blessed advantage we have that we're standing here with a whiteboard looking back making these contrasts and seeing what we have that is better and all they had was kind of a veiled glimpse a shadow of looking forward that's some of what this is pointing to as well is this pointing to the fact that there one day there's gonna be a better sacrifice all you know why why did he do this to show them one day one day I am going to provide that perfect sacrifice, and you guys are not going to have to do this anymore. And what does that do? Then when the one day comes and we have the perfect sacrifice, does, not, does that not make you more appreciative of what you have? I mean, I think about that. I, when we get into books like Hebrews, I'm glad, I'm thankful that in God's sovereign plan, I got to be born in this century and not back then and living under that economy. How blessed is that? 
that I, I get the that I get the fulfillment of the promises that they just longed for. Go ahead. It was, and it wasn't. It was how they were to live, the holiness, the standards by which they were to live, but other cultures sacrificed. So that wasn't unusual. Okay, okay. The way they lived, the be holy as I am holy. Mm-hmm. They were to be different because God is different. They were not to be common and defiled like those that lived around them. Exactly. Yes, Phyllis. Didn't make a point. I want to make a point about this quotation of Psalm 40 that's interesting if you really kind of sit there and think about it as well. David wrote that, you know, like a thousand years before Jesus takes it and uses it to express his own thinking and his own heart. Do you see that? He's, it's, 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 David wrote it, but it's Jesus' heart speaking here to God saying, Behold, you never took delight in these sacrifice and offerings and all these burnt offerings. What you always desired was a body, and that body would be mine. And behold, I have come to do your will. And there, the word love is not there, but the word love is all over. Isn't it dripping? It's just dripping. Here's the love of the Father and of the Son that I, what they can, what those the blood of the bulls and the goats could not do what they could never do for themselves. No amount of adherence to the law would ever make them holy and righteous. I, they can't do it. What is it? Romans 3, there's none righteous, no, not one. But then in 3.24, the big but, but now. God is the one in his righteousness that provides for us in the once for all sacrifice of his son. That, that is love poured out. I am going to give myself through my son to save them from me. I will, I will do that. He will be the perfect propitiation to satisfy my wrath of sin. And I'm doing it for them. We don't do anything but believe. That's wonderful. And that's neat to just sit there and it's almost like you're hearing Jesus speak if you, if you look at the text. Okay, I gave you some cross-references. This isn't the first time this concept has come up. No surprise here that sacrifices and offerings, really God takes no pleasure in them. There's lots of quotes here that you all read from the prophets. Those of you all that studied with us several years ago in the prophets, these are familiar verses. What, what was, when you read these, what, what do you see being said? We won't go through each one, but what do you see being said over and over? They didn't obey. What were they doing? 
Right. Offering sacrifices, but going back to the same thing over and over. Look at Amos. I hate, I despise, I take no delight. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. I, I'm a, I don't even want to look upon them. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. What does it say in Hosea? He sums up what? Well, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Look in Micah. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? With calves a year old, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you to but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? What is he saying? Summarize it for me. What is he saying about all these burnt offerings and sacrifices that he himself has said, this is what you're supposed to do, and they're doing it, but what are they missing? He's saying, snap out of it. This is a hard issue. Yes. It's always been a hard issue. It wasn't a ceremonial practice. It was a ceremonial practice that was um, reflecting what was supposed to be going on in the heart. So it wasn't, you all are just going through the actions. Like, I'll go do this, slap this, this, this bull down up here and shed this blood and let it burn, and then I'm good to go, and I can walk away and do whatever I want. And I don't have to have a contrite heart, a humble heart, or even a heart of repentance. But I took care of it, and you're pleased because I did what you told me to do. No, go ahead. You mean would he have instituted the whole system? I just was curious because that's what I got out of Jeremiah. But originally he just said obey me. He didn't yeah. immediately set up all these sacrifices. Right, right. And remember, there's been a Also keep in mind, there's a whole lot of history. There's thousands of years before he does institute the law. Um, I mean, I understand why you're asking that. But I, th- I think his point is just, you know, this is not what I ever wanted. What I always have wanted is an obedient heart and a heart that desires that you want me and you want to obey me and you want to be humble before me and you have a dependence on me and you want relationship with me because I want relationship with you. But I think he always designed for the law to come in, for there to be sacrifices. What did he do? What was the first sacrifice, you all? The very first. Yeah. Adam and Eve. When they sinned, he killed an animal to clothe them. There's the first sacrifice. There's been sacrifices all along. He was always, there was, and what was the first pronouncement, the first proto-evangelon of a coming Savior? Genesis 3.15 to Adam and Eve. If you go back and read that, it's a little veiled. But, you know, the serpent, you you will... What is it? He, you, he will crush your heel, but you will um, crush his head or whatever. You'll, you know, Jesus is going to deal a death blow to him. I said the first 
evangelistic preaching of the fact that there will be a Savior that will come and provide a perfect sacrifice for you. And in the meantime, I'm killing this animal, shedding blood, clothing you. And you know what? All along through here, I'm going to make covenants. I'm going to reveal from now forward, I'm going to reveal my progressive revelation of what I'm doing to provide ultimate redemption and ultimate redemption of my creation through Jesus Christ and when he returns. It's the whole broad picture. Does that make sense? Okay. Other thoughts or questions on those verses? Because I want to I want to move along. What is significant about the fact that he sat down? That the offering that was once for all, because of it, he sat down. Keep seeing that crop up over and over. In, in this book. Somebody said it earlier. What is significant about that? Okay. He sat down because it is done. It is finished. It is complete. But he's not only sitting there. Did you notice that? You kind of had to think, what else is he doing? He's sitting there, but he's also... He is interceding. What else is he doing? Waiting. What's he waiting for? What's going to happen when that day comes? Is he going to be sitting? Look out when he stands up. You know, I just kept thinking, like a parent, don't make me get up and come back there. <laughs> he is sitting. We focus on that, and yes, we should. But he is also, this just kind of really came alive for me this way. He is also waiting until the time that his enemies will be made a footstool. He isn't sitting forever. There's a day he's going to get up, and he's going to start walking. And, uh-oh, if you, don't, if you have waited, if you did not today, if you hear his voice, turn your heart to them, toward him, that's not going to be a good day at all because he's coming for judgment. He was here as a suffering servant. He is going to come back a triumphant king. And he will bring judgment with him to judge his enemies and to bring about final retribution to them. So look out when he does stand up. He's sitting down now, but there will be a day. You see how packed these verses are? Yes, ma'am. It's done, right? Their, their work was never completed. There were no chairs anywhere near the tabernacle. And that was very, very telling of the fact that the work was never done. They, they, it was never completed. They could never just sit down and go, oh, the work is done, because it wasn't done. But Jesus sits down because it is done. It is completed. It's, it's perfect. It is finished. Okay? Other thoughts? Okay, here's where I want to go in our remaining time that I think is really the summation of this this whole section, 
and, and particularly this passage, it is very important. I said in, in question nine that the verb tenses in this passage are very perfect, are very important. Because when you look in 10 and 14, in verse 10, the verse I have chosen, when it says, you have been sanctified, and also when you go down into verse 14, for by single offering he has perfected for all time. Those are in the perfect tense. We don't really have a perfect tense in English. Perfect means that there was a past completed action. It has already been achieved. Something happened in the past with the results continuing in the future. And not only that, in verse 14, that um, he has perfected, I believe it's that one, is also in the indicative, meaning this is an assertion of fact. You You can take that check to the bank and you can cash it. Now, why is that important? Why, why is that? I asked, I said, why is that so significant that we are sanctified? Sanctified means we have been made holy. We've been set apart. We've been made holy. We are sanctified. We are perfected. That means we are complete as far as anything goes with our salvation. What is so significant about the tenses of those words and the meaning of those words, what does that mean to us as New Covenant believers? Nancy, what I thought now, that the idea of this is true because Tony and I were just saying we've always heard that Christ's blood justified us, but the sanctification is ongoing as long as we live. And I thought maybe this meant uh, you are Well, we're kind of combining the next question a little bit because then it says in verse 14, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That's present tense as implying ongoing action. And so I threw the question out there, is the work of Christ to make us sanctified and holy a past, present, or future activity? So let's just kind of combine all these thoughts into one. Is it a past, present, or future activity? Yes. Yeah. Did you say yes, Ron? Oh, yeah. Is it, yes, it is. It is. This is the past. In 10 and 14, it's the past with continuing results in the future. And you're right. There's justification, sanctification, glorification. It's what I call it, what I've always been taught are the three tenses of salvation. I have been saved. I'm being saved. I will be saved. That ultimate salvation is when I am glorified and in his presence. But, but the point, what I want us to see is so significant here is this, you have been sanctified, you have been perfected, it is complete. As a new covenant believer, it is complete, it is done, there is nothing else to add to it. So why is that significant? I may just have to tell you, really. I'm trying to draw it out of you because I want you to think. I want you to think on that. Why? What's significant about that? What does that mean to us? What would you say, Ron? 
Everything Christ has done and he's doing it. Lynn? Yeah. Yes. It is, yes, here, what did we have? We had many, many priests, many sacrifices. It was continual. It could not take away. It was only temporary, the blood of the animals. It was, it was a works base. There was never a certainty. There was never assurance. It was not, it was not complete. Whereas over here, we have, we have certainty and assurance that the work is done because a body was prepared. A holy, righteous body was prepared that had unblemished, spotless blood that was shed on our behalf, so it is, it is completed. We no longer have to do, 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 do. What, you know, what, what do you see that over here? They're constantly doing something, right? Did you have a comment? You're looking funny. Okay. Okay. It is about relationship, and it is about doing certain things because we now are part of that covenant, and then obedience is still in there. The point I want us to see that I think a lot of us, not, not necessarily you, Tony, but a lot of us need to see and that I see people struggling with is the fact, and let me, let me just um, read this one quote to you. What he's saying then is, this is from Ray Stemmen, that all progress in the spiritual life comes from personally apprehending a fact that is already true. We must see that we already are what we already are by God's grace. Grace comes from under, growth comes from understanding who you are and then growing out of that place. What I'm trying to emphasize, and we'll emphasize this again next week, the work is done, it's complete, you are perfected, you are holy. Whether you feel it or not, you are holy. He is, if you are his child, you have been justified. You have been sanctified. You are holy. You are set apart. That is your station and your position in life. It's done. And the more you understand that and then understand what we have in him, this, what, what we have attained through this sacrifice and the fact that I have a new heart now. I have a heart of flesh, not a heart of stone. I have this, the law written in me, not on external tablets down at a courthouse somewhere. I have the Holy Spirit in me whose desire and function is to transform me and sanctify me and work with me as I work with him. 
Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you. I think that's what you're saying. I'm going to work it out as you are working it in me, but it's ultimately his work. Because that being sanctified, it's a present tense, but it's passive voice, meaning he's the one doing the work. As I submit to him in the power of the Holy Spirit and do the things that he's asked me to do, which is obey his word, read his word, communicate with him in prayer. But the important thing I want you to see, and I cannot emphasize it enough because I think some of us have a hard time understanding that identity. Like, I struggle with my identity in Christ, that he loves me and that I, I am accepted by him. And I think a lot of us struggle with the fact that you are, right, you are holy. I'm trusting that every person in this room has is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You are born-again believers, then you are holy. You are perfected, and you are sanctified. You, you are there. Now, now, because of knowing that, you can continue on to have an even greater measure of it as God works that out in you in preparation for the final salvation of the day of glorification. Does that make sense? What were you going to say? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's assurance. It goes back to, did I write that word down? It goes back to the fact that we, we, have, we have assurance. I'd write that down. We have assurance that this is true. I don't, I personally, and we're running out of time, I personally don't struggle with wondering am I truly saved or not. I had a moment, I had a time of that when I was um, probably the first couple of years I was a believer. I became a believer as an, as an adult, was not raised in a Christian home at all. And because of something someone said, it caused me to doubt, which was the most anguishing thing I think I've gone through in my spiritual life. But I, I pled and begged. I sought wise counsel. I searched the scriptures. I begged the Lord to have that type of fear taken away from me. And I don't, he did. And I, I don't. I really live in that place of, I now I struggle with, does he really love me? <clears throat> I do struggle with that one. But I don't struggle with, um, I, I am forgiven, and I have eternal life. I don't really worry about that at all. Because on that one, I have really firm ground. Yes, Norma. He is working. Yeah. So with me, he still works on me. Uh, he still has to mold and shape me like Connor said today, you know, because I'm still moldable. I, mm-hmm. I still am not where he wants me to be, but mm-hmm. that's where I am. But he's trying to get me to do what Jesus said. David said, I desire to do your will, Lord. Now, mm-hmm. David didn't totally do it. But Jesus said, I have come to do the will of the Lord. And he did it. Mm-hmm. So he did it. Like, Which is an ex- which is, is, is an example to us. He took joy and delight in being obedient to the Father. There's the, uh, there's the ultimate example to us to take joy and delight in doing the will of the Father. 
and in being obedient to him. Because Christ was for us, can we not also be? And I think the more we understand our, our station and our position, the more we want to, to do that. And I like what you said as far, uh, I'm going to rephrase, as far as his saving work is done, it's finished. He is sitting. But he is still working. He's still interceding. And he still has another work to do. He's going to stand up someday. And yeah. There's people out there dying and starving. We're out of time, but I'll leave you one more thought just to kind of think about when, because I've emphasized the assurance that we have, but this is also very distinctive. This is what makes Christianity distinctive is that it does provide assurance. Think about all the other religions. If you know people that practice Islam or even, even Mormons, they're constantly having to do good things and to be a good person, hoping that their list of good is, lo is longer than their list of bad when they die and that they might have an opportunity to go into heaven, into, etern into eternal life. Whereas we have assurance, I die tomorrow, I know the work is done. I may not be as transformed and as holy as God would like me to be. If I had lived longer, I would be, but I, I know where I'm going and I have complete assurance of that. And so there's such distinctiveness and assurance in Christianity and that's what really sets it apart. I guess Nancy caught me thinking. Um, it happens occasionally. And I guess the, the piece that I want to kind of think through, and, and it's, sometimes we can say it's a matter of semantics. I think it's more than semantics. Um, and it actually fits really, really well with what we're dealing with. I had a, a, a chance to, to sit and talk to Scott for a second in between, Scott and Kim, and it was one of, the, one of the interesting things that I was just thinking through. Remember what we're dealing with in the book of Hebrews. So the book of Hebrews is this picture of people who have in the past to look at sacrifice or ultimately the sacrificial system and that by that, let me make that a small s, through the sacrificial system, which is directly tied to the covenantal system that they might have um, a very tangible expression in which they would know that they were faithful and therefore, uh, I'm actually thinking a little bit as I'm describing this. They would be faithful. How would they know they were faithful? Because they read the covenant and they did what the covenant said so that they knew that they were faithful. That's what they're thinking, right? This is a little bit of some of our problems that we have when we think about the Pharisees, is that we think that somehow what they really had was this works-based righteousness, 
where they could stand in front of God and go, hey, God, it doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what you want. It doesn't matter who you are. You owe us. That's probably not really what happened. Um, and there's a lot, of being, a, lot of, a lot being written right now, actually, that is wondering how much Luther, and particularly the Reformation, took what was happening with Catholicism particularly, at that time period particularly, and read it back into the Scriptures. Okay? So do you kind of follow me there? They look at what we would consider more to be a Catholic version, and be careful, just, you know, all Catholics. Okay? It just always makes me a little nervous when you say these kinds of things. But kind of a little bit of the Catholic idea of penance, which is their way of redefining the concept of repentance. The idea of penance is kind of even a switch between the Greek word for repent and then the Latin word for repent. One, One goes from repent, mind change, to Latin penance, a thing to do. And Luther, this is Luther's major objection with some of the Catholic theology. And so that's why he reacts so strongly. What does he say? We are saved by, he writes in the book of Romans, by faith alone. Which is interesting because actually that, peer, that, that, that phrase never appears in the scriptures. Do you know that? Well, no, I shouldn't say that. That's not true. It does. It appears in James. James talks about faith alone. And what does James say? It will not save you. So that's kind of the joke about Luther. Um, so I, I, I want to kind of hold on to that a little bit because that's, that's somewhat interesting. So what they're doing is God has given to them the covenant through the law at Mount Sinai. We, deal, we dealt with this last week from uh, Exodus 20, right? They have this sacrifice system. I I, I went back and I started reading. I I really challenge you to go back and look at Leviticus. And one of the things that Leviticus says over and over and over again, and I just, I did not have the the time uh, to look at how often those words, when they're used, if they are, like, conditional. Um, Because this is what comes up in the end. In the ESV, it says this a lot. So when you offer a sacrifice, and if you should offer a sacrifice, make sure it's this. When you do this, and if you do this, what does that sound like to you when you hear those words? When and if. Kind of sounds like it's up to you. Then later on, it actually says over and over and over again, and when this happens, then you must do this. So it appears in the English, at least. I need to go back and look at, in terms of the Hebrew construction, whether or not these are suggestive. But as Nancy pointed out, Sacrifices and the offering of sacrifices was not new to the, Israel, or to, the, to the world through the Israelites. They'd been doing this years before. And so we read a lot of the sacrificial system as though God came down and said, okay, I know you love your sheep, now I want you to kill them for me. And before they're like, are you serious? But we love the sheep. And he's like, yeah, but I want you to kill them for me. That's how bad you are. That's really not the way the system worked. They were already offering sacrifices. The other one, which I don't have time to go into, is you know, what, you know what kind of sacrifices were always acceptable? They were the ones that were offered for unintentional sins. There is no sacrifice for intentional sinning. That's a whole other debate, by the way, we don't have time to go into, but I find that fascinating. You read Leviticus. 
And if someone unintentionally does this, then you should do this. And if someone unintentionally does this, then you should do this. And if someone unintentionally does this, then you should do this. John picks this up where we're going to be going to in 1 John 2 today. John picks up the idea and says, well, like, listen, like when you sin intentionally, there's no real forgiveness for that. But when you sin unintentionally, then we want you to do this. So I, and I still actually keep saying, okay, I need to go back and understand what that means more. Because isn't the sinning I do <laughs> intentional if I know better? Did anybody else wonder about that? I think it's a little more complicated than that. But when you have in the book of Leviticus this repeated phrase, if you and when you, make sure you do it this way. If you then, and by the way, and when you have an unintentional sin in these areas, then I want you to do this. If you have a guilt offering, I want you to do this. If it's a peace offering, then I want you to do it this way. But it's, it, is, it is far more regulated in the book of Leviticus, and we almost should have made it mandatory, <laughs> that you almost had to have at least once in the semester or in the year, I mean, to have read through the book of Leviticus to kind of get a real sense of what the sacrificial system really looked like. Because when I'm left to just think about it by myself, I'm left to just think, yeah, okay, so I just had a bad thought, so now i got to go kill a goat. And then I had another, I had a bunch of good thoughts, so I didn't have to kill anything. And then I had another bad thought, so I had to go kill my dog or something. You know, that's kind of the way that it actually works. And that's not actually how the sacrificial system worked. They were far more regulated in terms of the time of the year, and we all do it. We do them communally. We do them collectively, not just individually. But they serve a purpose. So God gives a covenant. Within that covenant, there is a sacrificial system. When we offer those sacrifices, then we know that we are faithful. Okay? At least in terms of obeying the command. Not perfectly faithful. And then when, when, when we are faithful, then we know that God will ultimately be faithful to forgive us. Them or us. I guess here, here's, the, here's the part that I want to think through a little bit more, and maybe a little bit with you. We made this statement a few moments ago that the old system was one of works. And the new one is one of grace. And so, you know, and I, I get it. That we, you know, what, what, what do we mean by that? And let's be really careful with this. But here's the part that I guess I'm, I'm still trying to think through. Um, I definitely want to draw a distinction between the old and the new. You have to. So was it in the old system that God had a workspace salvation? Like, do you read Romans and go, yeah, that was basically Paul's point, was back in the Old Testament Everybody was saved by works, and everyone was saved by works, and now everybody is saved by, but there was works, so how did they fit into it? And so this is the part that I think it might be good for us to say, okay, let's, let's try to be very particular for a moment to try to understand what the difference is between what the Hebrew writer is saying here, that sacrifices didn't do anything. They didn't do anything. Because um, if they did something, then we wouldn't need this Jesus once and for all. So the, I, there is a sense in which the sacrifices didn't do something, didn't do everything. I get that. But then there also is a sense in which they actually did do something, right? Because you don't read the Old Testament and go, man, God, God hated sacrifices and wanted nothing to do with them. That's not true. But then he does say at times, man, I don't want these sacrifices. So it's okay. It's like God, are you, obviously he's not schizophrenic. So what is, what is he getting at? And what is maybe a, a deeper understanding 
of how the Bible describes what's actually happening so that we can understand maybe what the Hebrew writer is challenging his audience to do, to think, so then we could know what we should do. So thoughts, Nancy? Sure, sure. And, and I don't know if this is where you're going or not. When you talk about I really don't even know where I'm going okay, right now. That's a little bit of the scary part. Because you talk about Paul in Romans, even this reading, Paul never assumed it was never by grace. Because in chapter 3, he says, by faith, Abraham. To emphasize all of your sacrificing, all of your observance of the law this day. Because it was always by faith. Let me tell you about your great patriarch, Abraham, who came way before the law. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, and again, I I really don't want to be like a super stickler, because there is something that's happening. There is. This is why I'm, when I looked at her and she said, "Do you want to say something?" I went, "No," because I don't even know what's happening in my brain right now. I'm trying to think of of, of how. I was feeling the same thing. Yeah, how to better. Yeah, how to better articulate. Now, now, here's where it gets a little more complicated, and this is why the Pharisees may help us. See, what the Pharisees were doing was they weren't talking about their own righteousness. Give me, and that guy to be careful. I need to finish that. It's a longer sentence. They are, too, actually. It wasn't their own righteousness per se. Okay? It wasn't their own righteousness per se. It was their understanding of their ability to achieve, I guess maybe put it up here, to achieve covenant faithfulness that they were appealing to, right? They're going back and they're saying, but God, I did everything that you wanted. I did everything that you said. And by the way, Jesus goes, no, you didn't. That's where I love the fact that Jesus really critiques them. I love this idea Jesus doesn't say, yeah, you know you did, but really the whole system was broken. Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus doesn't say, yeah, you know, you kept it perfectly. No, Jesus actually comes along to the Pharisees and says, actually you didn't. You were greedy. You were lawless. You can't read Matthew 23 without recognizing there was something actually fundamentally broken in it. Okay? But I think this is where Paul would even take it further. So here's what they're doing. The Old Testament covenant includes a sacrificial system. By by doing these sacrifices, we then know that we are faithful. And by knowing that we are faithful, then we know that also God will, in fact, be faithful. This is the way covenants work, right? We've taught on this. This is how a covenant works. This is how you know. We know, not, not that God loves us, but we know that God will reward us because we have obeyed him. That's how the Old Testament talks. Whether we like it or not as New Testament Christians, that is the Old Testament, correct? But have you guys read Jesus lately? He talks like that. That's not just the Old Testament. Jesus actually says crazy stuff like that. Like, if you love me, he doesn't say, you know, if you love me, you'll believe in me, but you really don't have to do anything I say because I'm up here just talking and you can totally do what you want to do because I totally respect you. He seems to talk very much like the God of the Old Testament, does he not? If you love me, you will what? You obey my commandments. So he talks very similarly. And this is kind of what got me going. I, I was, when I was talking to Scott and Kim, here's, here's one thing that was very interesting. 
So in Hebrews 10, the Hebrew writer is, is, is kind of having at the very kind of the backdrop of his thinking. Um, you guys need to, don't, don't, do not go back to the, to the sacrificial system. Why would you go back to the sacrificial system? It's not, it's not complete, right? It's not, it's not intended, as someone kept saying, I couldn't hear it was, but they kept saying over and over and over again, it was never designed to ultimately do that, which, by the way, I think that's, that is true. It was never designed to do that. It was designed for Israel in the promised land during this time period. The Mosaic Covenant was designed for a specific time period. It wasn't designed to last forever, okay? That's what I believe the scriptures teach. If that was the intent... And the Hebrew writer is saying, why, why would you go back to this when we have so much something which is so much greater, which is Jesus? But not just Jesus the person. Think about this. What is he teaching? It's not just Jesus is better than a goat. It's what? His blood beats goat blood. So it's still, he's still holding on to the idea of sacrifice. And I think it's important for us to remember that. That there is a sense in which it's still about sacrifice. And that's the point that you get in Hebrews 10, is it not? It's really about sacrifice. And he's pulling them in to this challenge. Why go back to the Old Testament understanding of sacrifice with bulls and goats when you have something that is greater? Why go back to the shadow when you have the reality? That's kind of his premise, right? Now, here's what's fascinating. We don't know when it was written, but we think it was written before 70 AD. One of the questions that, that Scott asked me was, when did they stop sacrificing? And the answer is probably a few years before because they so star- the Romans so starved Jerusalem um, that women were eating their own children for the last, I forget how many years. It was, it was so terrible inside Jerusalem. I doubt if there was an animal to be found. Okay? So roughly 70 AD... The sacrificial system ends. This is probably 65-ish. Now, again, the Hebrew writer doesn't know that. But isn't it interesting that the Hebrew writer is going, why go back to the sacrificial system? What's about to happen to the sacrificial system? It's going to stop anyway, which is fascinating to me. I never even made that connection until Scott described that. Again, the Hebrew writer doesn't know that. But the Hebrew writer was saying, why are you going back to this system? Interestingly enough, that system's got five, a five-year shelf life before God condemns it. Literally condemns the sacrificial system. Not, does, not fulfills it in Christ in 29 AD, but condemns it completely in 70 AD through Titus Vespasian and the Roman Empire. Okay? He, brings it, he brings it to a close, and he brings it to a close. And it's in this instance that he's, but he's, the, these, these Jewish people are still in the middle and they're going, well, hey, I want to go back to the bulls and goats thing. I think I can find, and these are the two words I want to kind of hinge off of. This is what I was planning to talk about today. I want to, I want to kind of hang off the idea of, I want to be made holy. I want to be t- the 1014 text. I want, to be, I want to be holy. And also in 1014, I want to be what? I want to be complete. I want to be whole. I want to be mature. I want to be perfect. Teleos. Like I, those are the two things that I want. And he, they're, they're, they're attempting to go back into bulls and goats. And the Hebrew writer is saying, it's actually not there. It's not there. So this is, this is kind of what I was thinking about rather quickly in my head. If 
what we are looking at is this major switch that actually holds on to God operating in the same way. Like, we know this. God didn't change. God didn't go, I used to be works, now I'm grace. No, he was always grace, and it was always faith, correct? Then we get to ask the incredible question, works of what? Which may be a more important question. Not works, yes, no, but works of what? And then the other thing that I think is absolutely critical is faith in what? Like, what do I have faith in? And that becomes, I mean, the, maybe the ultimate question that Jesus is constantly bringing up, that Paul is constantly driving at, that the Hebrew writer is giving them a better taste of. Because watch, watch how this actually, I don't know about you, I love finding consistency in the scriptures. Where I say, wow, so I'm not much different than Moses. So here's what Moses was doing. Because I used to believe when I was a kid, Moses believed the goat saved him. And I'm so glad because he was so stupid. But man, I, I'm so much smarter than Moses because I know that Jesus is really what saves me. Maybe that's, I don't know if that's what Moses thought actually. And when you go back and you look, and our covenant session really helped me. So if the Old Testament covenant says, hey, here is what I want you to do. The people do it. When they are faithful, then God is faithful. Then they are putting their trust, okay, rightly in a particular work which is the work that God says that it is, it is through this, this covenant, us keeping this covenant, that you will find peace and that you will find reward and that you will find my faithfulness, which is what? The sacrifice of bulls and goats. Right? I will, essentially what he's saying is, I will accept that for you. It's substitutionary, isn't it? I'll, I'll, I'll accept that. Instead of being your own blood, I'll accept the blood of a bull and a goat. That's what I'll take. And then I will offer you peace. Now, how could God do that? And we know, Romans 3 says what? How could he do that? Because he knew that one day there was going to be a true sacrifice that was going to come that was going to atone for all. So he knew that was going to happen. So God holds back his wrath knowing that one day Jesus Christ was going to come. So if I were to ask Moses, how are you saved? I think he would say to me, by God's grace. Really, how was that given to you? Well, God gave me his word. Where? On Mount Sinai. Okay. And then he would begin to relate a very rather complicated, I think he would go more than just the sacrifice of the goat. It would be much deeper than that for Moses. And by being faithful in this way, I find peace with God and I receive his unmerited favor. And the question becomes, now that Jesus Christ has come, what do we actually have? And now all of a sudden, there really is still a sacrifice that saves us. Right? And the sacrifice is who? It's Jesus. So what you and I get to kind of, you know, find great pleasure in is, so then how do you find hope and joy and peace? It is in the ultimate sacrifice that Jesus has given for us. That God steps in to all of this and says, listen, here is where you're completely freed. You're completely freed from the, and this is why Paul saw 
kind of the, the death of the law, not because it was bad, but because it was obsolete. Paul saw freedom in the death in the law. But again, not because it was bad, not because it was evil. No, it was actually, Paul calls it holy and righteous and good in Romans. But boy, he so is grateful that it's gone. Like he doesn't seem to be like, oh, I wish I had the law back. He's like, no. What we have now in Christ is way more. So now all of a sudden, the the hope that we have and the greater, because how many of you have noticed that in this book, and we have a greater assurance, do we not? Why do we have a greater assurance? We have a greater insurance according to the book of Hebrews. Because why? Because our sacrifice is what? It's greater. It's better. So what we are now holding on to, and by the way, I'm not even saying that all the Jews understood this. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not arguing that this is how the Jews understood it. But I would argue it's how God intended it always. And I would argue that probably some, the remnant, we like to call them, that I believe some of the remnant did get this. And then I think some did not get this. So I think it's, there's a, truly a mixed bag. It's kind of like, what do all Americans think about Donald Trump? I mean, I get that question all the time from friends around the world. Man, what do all Americans think? Well, seriously, all Americans? That's way too complicated. But what we actually have is a very similar way of God reaching down to us covenantally, a very similar way in which God's merited, unmerited, sorry, unmerited favor is grace is actually given to us by him foregoing and then by him ultimately accepting the blood of Jesus Christ. And then we know, by the way, our faithfulness, which the Bible talks a lot about, and then we can ultimately then trust in God's faithfulness. Nancy. Well, I'm thinking to show us the story. I don't think we have to. Sure. You know, when he's talking to the remnant, this is what God really wanted, the remnant, and then we go back to that one word, and that's probably where I'm thinking the lesson from the prophets. Because they're saying, I don't know what the value of Yes, yes, yes. Now all of a sudden they are. That's not what he. That's yes. not what he intended. Yes, he yes. See, and this is why. See, this is why I wish I had more time to do this, and I don't even all know forever because I've wanted to do this for years. That's why I'm beginning to wonder if what is actually happening in all of the Bible is the difference between unintentional and intentional. See, when there is intentional sin, then sacrifices become works, which is what he condemns. That's what you're talking about, where it becomes a work, because it's not there. So uh, basically, and this is not, is this not Jesus' accusation of the Pharisees? You're going to do what you want to do, you're going to live the way that you want to live, and then you're going to throw a sacrifice on it and call it good. That's a work, right? And we still do it today. Yes. Yeah. 
we have to be very, very careful. Yeah, I want to do this bad, I want to do this sin, and I'll make it up by something else. And by the way, this actually, the answer to this is, like, this is a, this is a wrong system. This is a wrong, so it's, it's actually, it is the workspace system. So what God always condemns, going back to what the prophets described, when he says, I hate these sacrifices, they weren't the well-intended sacrifices of the, the people that were bringing them heartfully because they were prescribed in the Old Testament. That's not the people he's accusing. He is accusing those people who are going, hey, like I really want to do this. It's the, there's, a, there's, a famous, um, there, there's a famous scene in one of the Godfathers where the henchmen are sent out to murder all of the enemies and, then, and the family are going to church for a christening in one of their kids and the priest is there to bless them. It's that. And how many of you see that and go, like, that is just sick to the highest degree. That is the workspace righteousness that the Apostle Paul condemns. That is the workspace righteousness that we should find repugnant. To live like that and to plead for God, the only way that you can do it is through some kind of a workspace salvation. And it does not exist. It does not exist. That's different than the person genuinely with the heart offering the pigeon sacrifice in the Old Testament. Does that make sense? And that's where it's, it's good to separate those from there because to just talk about sacrifice or not sacrifice really misses the point. It's sacrifice in a works-oriented way or sacrifice in a God-honoring, trusting His covenantal hope trusting his covenantal faithfulness, his covenantal grace, those are the two different paths that you take. And Jesus accuses the Pharisees particularly of creating, in that sense, a workspace righteousness where he says the temple is going to fall down. There is no path back to God in that instance. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah, there is a sense, I've thought about that a lot. I've thought about just how much more repugnant sin would be. I mean, I, do you remember watching The Passion? I mean, it was one of, the, one of the few times where, you know, I mean, I've, I've felt really bad for my own sin many times. But this was one of those times I just went to see a movie, and I, I, by the time I was done, sin was repugnant to me. And that just doesn't happen all the time. I can go to an OSU football game and not walk away and be, feel like sin is repugnant. It's like, no, go Cowboys. But that movie hit me when I saw the sacrifice that Jesus had to make. And I remember thinking that exact same thought, Tara, to have to look at the death of, a, of something, particularly the Son of God, gives you a profound appreciation for the consequences of sin. <laughs> well, 
you may have heard the story. I won't go into it in, 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 full, in full length, but when I, I brought my kids before the elders in a confessional moment, um, the part that concerned me a little bit was the elders were very forgiving. And as they're being very forgiving, I'm kind of going, okay, someone should punch them now. And I'll say who it was. And not, not and by the way, no, no one was giving a pass, but they were, they were, and maybe the tears of these two really scared, crying high school kids kind of set the tone a little bit too. But I'll never forget Larry Zirkel looking at them. And um, he did speak words of forgiveness, but his first words were, um, I hope you now see the consequences of sin. And I remember him saying that and looking over the table going, man, I'm so glad you said that because if not, I was going to give a big speech at the end. But we need to feel that. We need to, we need to understand the brokenness of that. And, I, and I, by the way, the, and, and why? It's not so that they would feel bad, but that they would actually feel truly forgiven. Like I didn't walk out of the passion and feel like a bad person. No, I felt like a saved person, like an incredibly saved person an incredibly holy person because of what Christ did, right? So I'm not talking about walking out and going, man, I'm such a terrible person, I should go eat dirt. That's not the way I felt at all. But all of a sudden I saw in front of me the, 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 the life being taken from my Savior, realizing that as much as I want to blame the Romans or as much as I might want to blame the Jews or as much as I might want to just kind of give God, quote-unquote, the credit for this great plan, the truth is he bore my sin on that cross. And that gave me a profound appreciation for grace. Which, by the way, I mean, I look at the cross and I see God's kindness to me. Terry, you were going to say? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah, no, I do. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> I feel silly saying this. Yeah, you're in our, you're in the membership class. I, I want to in my last eleven minutes. I want you. I want you to turn somewhere kind of strange. Philippians three twelve. So Hebrews 10, 14 makes the statement that we are now, that Christ has completed, right? He has perfected those he is sanctifying, right? He has perfected. That's 10, 14. But what does Philippians 3, 12 say? Not 2, 12. 3, 12. Who wants to read Philippians 3, 12? Go ahead. Okay, and by the way, the word he uses there is the same word, completed. Now, this is why you've got to give some room for words. This is why when anybody wants to throw one word on me from one verse and think they can answer everything, I want to say, okay, listen, context and the deeper theological stuff is going to help us appreciate this more. So the Hebrew writer says, we are now complete. Christ has completed us. You have to hold it in the context of Hebrews 10. But Paul says here, what? Not that I've already obtained all this. Not that I've already become perfect, but what? But I strain onward towards this, which Tara kind of answers your question. 
For some reason in God's plan, and, and, and uh, Ryan Vincent shared this on Sunday night. He was kind of complaining about his progressive sanctification. He was saying, oh, I wish I was already sanctified. I just hate the fact that it's taking so long. And, and by the way, I totally agree that he should be a better person. But I totally, I totally agree with what he's saying. Like, I, I mean, I could have said those words. There was something about, this is what I love, there's something about me listening to someone else that makes me think different. And so as he was describing, and Tara, why can't we just be that way all the time? Like, why can't we just always live in that moment? Because um, God didn't intend that for this time period in his sovereign plan. Like, why didn't Jesus Christ come? Like, why, why did God allow the sacrificial system for so long? Well, honestly, one of the reasons why God's not in a hurry is because time's not an issue to him. So it's long to us. But it's not even just long to him because he can take great big steps of time. Time is nothing to him. And so God is able to work all of this out. Why? Because it's already been worked out in him, has it not? And that's a beautiful reminder. I think one of the things that I'm beginning to appreciate is the fact that what Paul is saying in the Philippians 3.12 text is that there is a sense in which I am being made complete. I am being made mature, right? Isn't he saying that? By what? By all of this, by the beating of my body, by, by literally, he's talking about by suffering for the cause of Christ is what he's saying in Philippians 3. That he can attain this incredible righteousness, not of his own works, that's Philippians 3, but a righteousness that comes by faith, and it's this is what he's trusting in, right? Not in this that he did, which to him was more tangible, kind of like if I could bring in a goat, it would seem more tangible. I get it. Paul's going, but this one's better. This one is more profound. This one brings Greater assurance and greater confidence. Why? Because it's a greater sacrifice. And so the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 3.12, not that I'm perfect, not that I'm already complete, but I strain, I work. Earlier in the text, he talks about this work being done by the Holy Spirit in him. I, I think what we may struggle with in this, what Tara was describing, why, why do we have to go to Walmart and be different? Why can't we just always stay in this constant state of angst? I, I think I'm beginning to appreciate it's, it's, that is causing me, since I live in this time between the cross and the second coming, it is this constant working out. I am learning like a child a growing dependency on the Holy Spirit and a greater appreciation of the work in Christ. So I, I'm not even, I don't want to take away from you the longing for it to be over, Orion's longing for it to be over. But there's no other way for it to work out in the now. Do you know that? Like, I mean, honestly, here's the, here's the one thing I want to say. And I'm not trying to give anybody a pass. If you know me, I, I'm not interested in passes for me or for anybody. But here's what I want to just ask you. If God is patient with your sanctification, why aren't you? Why are you so up in arms about it? If God is patient with you. Now, by the way, again, I'm not going, hey, let's all sit back. No, 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 no. 
I want us to sit back and to lean back into the work that the Holy Spirit is doing in us, in the finished work that Christ has done for us, okay? So we will spur one another on and encourage one another to do more and continue to do more and more as the day approaches, as Paul says, okay? I'm not asking for a pass. But in the midst of our desire to be sanctified and to be more like that, I just, I'm hearing a lot, and mostly me, like this frustration with the progressive sanctification aspect of it, that it does take a long time. And I just have to, every time I keep hearing about it, I'm like, you know who I really am not pleased with on this issue actually is God. Like, why didn't he just fix me at my baptism when I was 12? Like, why am I still wrestling with these things? And the real truth, part of it is, who's got this? Does God not have this? So look at what Hebrews 10.14 says again. Hebrews 10.14 actually says that God has already done a work. Now, Paul, I get it. I know you're still working something out too. I'm not trying to argue with Paul. I get what he's saying. He is still being made mature, but he has been already made complete in Christ. And then that's what the Hebrew writer says. We have already been made complete what God has done for us. He has made us complete those he is now continually sanctifying. And that's where it's both of those. Yeah. Made me his own. Yeah. Not saying anything different. Same thing. And that's kind of the, the, the living in the tension. It's kind of like I don't want, I don't want Tara to not, I don't want her to not want it all the time. And I want her to find rest in the not having it all the time. Because you already have it as you strain to get it. So in the midst of that effort, find peace and rest. Does that make sense? <laughs> um, let, me, let, me, let, me, let me kind of share with you these two final verses. Then we'll actually be done maybe a minute early. I love Revelation 22, verse 11. Um, it, is, it is one of those passages, more and more, I love to just stand in front of people. We just have, we have this apologetics class. I am more content by lifting up the name of Christ to others and saying, do you believe in him? And when they say yes, I go, great. And when they go, no, I go, I'm so sorry. And my heart breaks for them, but I, I can't believe in Jesus for you. Like, I can't, I can't convert for you. And I'm, 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 I'm finding greater comfort, actually, in God, knowing that he's got them. So Hebrews 22, or sorry, Revelation 22, verse 11 says what? It's a challenge to the book. What does it say? Who's got it? Somebody, okay, go, Nance. But the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still do filthy. And the righteous still do right, and the holy still do holy. <laughs> I love that verse. So it's a challenge at the end of Revelation. Hey, I've given you what's going on. And let the evil still do evil. Let the unfil- Let the filthy, let the... Let them continue to be filthy, but let the righteous be righteous, and let the holy continue to be holy. What a great challenge for us. By the way, that's why I believe Revelation has that really strong, for he who has ears to hear, let him hear. 
Because I read the book. Here, here, here's my point. Do you read the book of Revelation and you want to be holy? I'll be honest with you, I do. Like, do you read the word of God and you want to be holy and you want to be righteous? Is that not a sign that the Holy Spirit is working in you? I'll leave you, and I want to read this one. The last words I want to read to you are 1 Thessalonians. You can turn there because I'd love for you to just to see it. This should be a verse that's underlined in your Bibles. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23. The Apostle Paul, um, this has become one of my favorite goodbye verses when I'm with people. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? The two words we've been talking about is being complete and being sanctified. And Jesus has made complete those he is still sanctifying. Right? Who did it? Jesus. And Paul says what to the Thessalonians? Now may God, the God of peace, himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 24. He who calls you is faithful, and he will surely do it. And that's what the Hebrew writer is saying. Why well, go back and find something that is old, not bad, just old, when God himself has truly himself become both the sacrifice and the one who accepts the sacrifice? Like, that's the greatest thing. And I really do pray that you find greater peace in the fact that Jesus has both justified you and that his Holy Spirit is sanctifying you. May you feel a burden, truly. May you feel a burden to be more holy as you know you are completely holy. May you feel the pleasure of him refining you and making you more like Jesus because he has already made you completely like Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. That is my benediction. God bless. Love you guys.